Hello again, dreamers. This is part two of California Dreaming series, The Tale of Who Killed Stacy Stites. If you haven't listened to part one, pause this, go back and listen to episode 111 first, and then come back to this one and you will be caught up. And again, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains details involving graphic violence and sexual assault and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. So in part one, we went over many of the facts of the case involving the murder of Stacy Stites, as well as a good portion of the main pieces of evidence the prosecution presented to the jury that led to Rodney Reed's conviction and subsequent death sentence for her murder. The theory the state presented told the following narrative. On the evening of April 22nd, 1996, Jimmy Fennell told Stacy's mom, Carol, that he was going to drive Stacy to her job where she had an early morning shift that started at 3.30 a.m. at the HEB in Bastrop, Texas. Despite Carol's offer to give Fennell a ride later on in the day to Bastrop to meet up with Stacy so he could sleep in. When Stacy was going to get off work that afternoon, she and Fennell had a couple of errands to run, so he needed to make his way out that direction towards the end of her shift to meet up with her. When Stacy failed to show up for her shift the morning of April 23rd, Fennell told investigators that they had changed their plans for him to drive her to work and he ended up sleeping in while Stacy left for work at her usual time at approximately 3 in the morning in his truck. Fennell's truck was discovered abandoned in the Bastrop High School parking lot that morning at 5.23 a.m., by an officer on his regular patrol. A portion of Stacy's broken woven belt was found on the ground outside the locked driver's side door of the truck. Stacy's body was discovered just before 3 p.m. that afternoon in some brush along Blue Bonnet Drive. Stacy had been strangled to death and the ligature marks had a pattern consistent with the pattern of her belt. The other part of her belt was along the roadside near her body along with a crumpled up t-shirt that was strewn over some brush near her body, and her HEB name tag was nestled in the crook of her knee. Vaginal swabs collected at the scene and later on during her autopsy revealed a small number of intact spermatozoa. Although Fennell was the last person to see Stacy alive, and he was the one that was supposed to have driven her to work, Investigators never searched the apartment he and Stacy shared, nor did they even ask to, despite the fact that suspicions had turned towards him. Fennell was investigated as a suspect for several months, even though his DNA did not match the semen found on the vaginal swabs. Police interrogated Fennell repeatedly and aggressively, and after he was twice found to be deceptive on polygraph tests, Fennell proceeded to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege, thereby refusing to cooperate with the investigation from that point forward. Now, many of us don't put a great deal of stock in polygraph tests, so it's neither here nor there. It seems it's mostly useful as an investigative tool more than anything else, and of course, they are not admissible in court. 
The investigation eventually led to Rodney Reed when his DNA came back as a match to the DNA of the spermatozoa found in Stacy's body. He was arrested and charged in 1997. No other evidence, no fingerprints, no hair, no footprints, and no other DNA connected Rodney Reed to Fennell's truck or to the location where Stacy's body was discovered. Using the timeline Fennell outlined of that morning, the state theorized that Stacy left Giddings in Fennell's truck at around 3 in the morning. The state put forth the argument that Rodney somehow intercepted Tracy somewhere along her route to Bastrop, somehow got her to stop and pull over, gained entry into the truck, pulled Stacy out of her seatbelt without unbuckling it, then sexually assaulting and strangling her in the truck without leaving any fingerprints, hair, or other trace evidence behind. Then Rodney got into the truck, drove to some discreet location, like a backcountry road, where he partially redressed Stacy's body. He then dragged her into the brush, placed her employee name tag in the crook of her knee, and left a part of Stacy's broken belt at the roadside, pointing towards the location of Stacy's body. Then Rodney drove the truck to the Bastrop High School parking lot, locked it, and walked away, again leaving no trace evidence that he was ever there. The absence of forensic and trace evidence connecting Rodney to either crime scene was eclipsed by the state's experts, namely crime scene investigator Karen Blakely and medical examiner Dr. Roberto Bayardo, who opined that the presence of the three intact spermatozoa on the vaginal swab proved that Stacy was sexually assaulted and murdered around 3 a.m., and therefore, those intact sperm could not have been deposited consensually a day before her death as the defense claimed. Rodney Reed insisted that he and Stacy had consensual sex the Sunday night going into Monday morning or about one day before she was killed. And I will take a closer look at that timeline as we go along. Pathologist Dr. Roberto Bayardo testified at Rodney's trial that Stacy died at 3 in the morning on April 23rd and that she was sexually assaulted at the time just prior to her death. The Texas Department of Public Safety crime scene investigator Karen Blakely testified that she believed Stacy had been sexually assaulted based on the condition her clothing was found. She also testified that she found three intact spermatozoa at 11 p.m., on April 23rd, some eight hours after the discovery of Stacy's body, and this led her to the conclusion that sexual intercourse must have occurred within 26 hours of when she saw those spermatozoa, based on published documentation that says that 26 hours is the outside length of time that tails will remain on a sperm head inside the vaginal tract of a woman. The prosecution presented expert testimony from Megan Clement, a serologist with the Bode Cellmark Forensics Lab. She testified that the tails of the spermatozoa break off after a short period of time and that she had, in more than 10 years of experience examining rape kits, had never found an intact sperm more than 24 hours after intercourse. So when the prosecution was presenting its closing arguments, 
They continued to place all their emphasis on the small amount of Rodney's sperm that was found and how that was clear and undisputed proof that he was Stacy's killer, stating, Bingo. She finds three fully intact spermatozoa. At that point, she knows what she's got here. We all know what she's got here. Because we know from the credible evidence that tells you that semen got into that girl's body within 24 hours of that 11 o'clock moment, which is when on Stacy's way to work. And furthermore, the state contended the semen had been linked to the sexual assault that has been linked to Stacy's murder. And all of this flies in the face of Rodney's claim that he and Stacy had a consensual sexual relationship in the days before her murder. And it was clear during deliberations that the jury had put a great deal of stock into the testimony about the sperm and its life expectancy after sexual intercourse. They had requested to see Dr. Bayard's testimony, and they wanted to know more about his opinion on the life expectancy of intact sperm. And the judge allowed for portions of Dr. Bayardo's testimony to be read back to the jury for further consideration. So, let's go back to Jimmy Fennell and his story. We have mentioned before that he was looked at hard as a suspect in Stacy's death from the onset. Despite the fact that his apartment was never searched and his vehicle was not seized indefinitely, he was still purportedly aggressively questioned about his possible involvement. Fennell reached a point, however, prior to Rodney Reed even being on the radar yet as a suspect, where Fennell invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege when he was questioned any further as to his involvement in Stacy's death. I do find that a little bit suspect. I mean, why would someone in Fennell's situation take the fifth? There are one of two things that are going to be coming out of Fennell's mouth. It's either going to be the truth or it's going to be lies. He invoked the fifth so he would not be compelled to say anything at all. He invoked the fifth so he would not be incriminating himself. If Fennell's claims are the truth and he was truly innocent, of having any involvement with Stacy's death, then the truth will not incriminate him. Fear of incrimination, invocation of the fifth, might very well demonstrate a consciousness of guilt here. But then again, people will say, just stay quiet and get your attorney. You do have the right to remain silent. And time and time again, we see these crime shows advise us to remain silent no matter what. So, can we fault Fennell for pleading the fifth? Personally, I think it's a bad look because he's a cop. He's the fiancé. If his story was truly on the up and up, well then, what do you have to hide? His story, at least what Fennell claimed was his story, is that Stacy went to bed, he went to bed, she left for work, he never heard her leave, and nothing was amiss until he received the call from Carol that Stacy had not shown up for work. Did he plead the fifth because he was getting pressured for the details, the minutiae? Those are the places the slip-ups happen, right? The tiny details, you know, 
where the devil is? Those are the things he knows he might not be able to account for, and he could not run the risk of getting caught even in the tiniest of lies. Oh, but when Rodney Reed was arrested and charged with Stacy's murder, and he was going to go to trial, Fennell did a complete 180 and testified to a timeline of the evening leading up to Stacy's murder that exculpated him as a suspect, as well as supported the case that the state had built against Rodney. The state's case and their theory completely relied on Fennell's version of what happened that evening, which established that Stacy was intercepted while driving to work that morning, sometime around or after 3 a.m. The state also needed Fennell's testimony to discredit Rodney's claims that he and Stacy recently had consensual sex. And to further discredit Rodney's claims, Fennell testified that he and Stacy had showered together the night she was murdered and they were not engaged in sexual relations which was meant to infer that it is not true that Rodney and Stacy were together the day before she was murdered. The prosecutor said, quote, Jimmy Fennell told you that Stacy was on the green pill at the time of her death, so they weren't engaged in any kind of sexual relations. But they expect you to believe that she would go out and do that with Reed? So, dreamers, I had to ask about Rodney's and Stacy's relationship in the Facebook group dedicated to Rodney's innocence, I needed to know about the nature of their relationship. Apparently, Bastrop was known and is still known today to be intolerant of interracial relationships. Though in the years since Stacy's murder, the climate has improved somewhat, though the stigma of interracial relationships has not completely gone away. This is small southern town America we are talking about here. It would be only a couple of years and a couple hundred miles later that the horrific dragging death of James Byrd Jr. would take place over in Jasper, Texas, a crime committed by three white men, two of whom have been already put to death by the state of Texas, and a third continues to sit in prison to this day. So when we put Stacy and Rodney's relationship in the context of small-town Texas circa 1996, it wasn't going to be something that the two of them were going to carry on with openly. They would be judged for it, and it would have probably been more hard on Stacy than Rodney, though we can't say for certain, or at least I can't, because I'm not from there. I don't know what it's like. According to Rodney's family, Because of the way he was raised, his father was in the military and they moved frequently to a variety of different cities and states. So Rodney was exposed to a wide range of people, places, and things. And it would not be out of character for him to be interested in women outside of his own race. But what about Stacy? How would her family have reacted had they known she had a romantic interest in an African-American man? I don't know if we would ever know the true answer to that, but it would, in a small way, explain why nobody would ever believe Stacy would be interested in Rodney. 
But according to Rodney, she did and was very much into hanging out with him, secretly, behind the back of her fiancé Fennell, who is white and is a small-town Texas cop. Fennell probably wouldn't have taken it all that well if he had found out Stacy was cheating on him. But to be cheating on him with a black guy... I could see that causing him to become incredibly enraged. So the prosecution had the jury convinced that no, Stacy wasn't having sex with her own fiance. Therefore, she certainly wouldn't be having sex with this other guy either. But let's look at the timeline of what Rodney says happened between him and Stacy. They had met some months back at a place called the Diamond Shamrock. I was told it was a local hangout, but when I looked online, it seemed as though it's a chain of gas stations and convenience stores. So I guess that's where Rodney says he met and began talking to Stacy. He lived in Bastrop and obviously Stacy was frequently in Bastrop for work. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that she would begin seeing Rodney secretly. It's a safe enough distance away from Giddings for word to not get back to Fennell or to her mom if she was attempting to keep this a secret. According to Rodney, he last saw Stacy in the late night hours of Sunday, April 21st into the early morning hours of Monday, April 22nd. Rodney said at some time on that Sunday evening, Stacy picked him up, they hung out, They drove to someplace secluded where they engaged in consensual sex and she took him home and went to work. So if his story is true, then we can roughly estimate that they were intimate sometime before 3.30 in the morning that day of Monday the 22nd because she had to be at work by that time, 3.30. It's hard to say exactly what time She would have gone there to see him, but I can imagine she's not going to want to spend the whole entire night out considering she had a full shift later on that morning. So at some time during the night, late Sunday into early Monday, Stacy left Giddings and came to Bastrop to see Rodney before she went to work that morning. That could have been anywhere between two and five hours before the start of her shift and this is just my own rough estimate. So Stacy made it through her entire workday on Monday. She arrived home early that afternoon, and according to her mom, she had lunch and took a nap. Fennell arrived home later on that day. He went and coached his Little League team and arrived back home again between 8 and 8.30. After that, Fennell said he and Stacy showered together. And based on all we know about Stacy's activities since the time that she was purportedly with Rodney, this would have been the only shower she took since her consensual sexual encounter with Rodney. As Stacy is headed to bed, according to Fennell, which was around 9 p.m., then this would be less than 24 hours since her encounter with Rodney. So now I'm going to go on a side discussion here about Stacy and sex. And I'm going to throw out some questions for you to ponder. 
Stacy went the entire day after Rodney claimed that he had sex with her, and we're assuming that it was unprotected sex since his semen was found a day and a half later. And Stacy went on with her day without having cleaned up or taken a shower or anything like that that we know of, right? So ladies, think about how you would be and feel after an entire day of work. And then you go home and you're totally exhausted and you want to eat and crash out for a nap. Stacy still hadn't taken a shower that we know of to wash away any of the previous evening's activities. So keep that in mind. It's not exactly the freshest feeling in the world, right? I mean, for the most part, your personal hygiene throughout the day is manageable, but really nothing's going to get things back to normal like a really good warm shower. So Fennel comes home. He goes off to his little league thing. He comes back around 8 or 8.30. And Stacy has been in the company of her mom pretty much the entire afternoon, correct? And as far as I know, mom has never said that Stacy showered. So Fennel comes back and he claims that they showered together. But they didn't have sex? I mean... That's kind of an intimate activity that typically has a sexual aspect to it, especially towards the end of the night. I mean, not always, but it depends on the couple. And he made up an excuse for the absence of sexual activity being related to the birth control pill cycle that she was on. But I don't know, dreamers. There is something about this entire sequence of events that Fennell has put out there that doesn't sit right with me. And then he says she went to bed. He stayed up later and eventually went to bed himself. That is his story. Okay, so I have a theory, and this is only my opinion. This is just one possible scenario that I've managed to conjure up in my own head. I don't think Fennell and Stacy showered at all that night. I think Fennell figured it out. I think he figured out Stacy was being unfaithful to him. However that was that he figured it out, I can't be sure, but my best guess is that it had something to do with the fact that Stacy never showered or really freshened up since she had last been with Rodney. And there are two reasons why I think they never showered and that I think that Stacy did not live much past midnight if she ever made it to Tuesday the 23rd at all. One reason is because Rodney Reed's saliva was found on swabs taken of her breast. Now, since the time I formulated this opinion, I've been told that there wasn't saliva found on her breast, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I thought anyway. I thought that if there was saliva there that it got there from the previous evening's sexual encounter with Rodney and it persisted on her skin until her death. If Stacy had showered, that saliva would not have been on her skin. But it is possible that Rodney's saliva transferred onto Stacy's bra and if she had showered and wore the same bra, perhaps the DNA from the dried saliva may have transferred back onto her skin. 
Yes, that's possible. And it all depends where on her breast the saliva was and if they tested the bra. And you know, some of these questions could have been answered if the apartment that Stacy shared with Fennell was searched like it should have been. We would have had a better idea if she had taken a shower or not. I had kept wondering how it was Rodney's saliva persisted on her skin for more than a day, and the answer could very well be that she never showered. From the time that she last saw Rodney till the time that she was murdered, I believe that Stacy possibly never showered at all. Again, I have been told that the saliva wasn't found, but that was a possible explanation that I had come up with when I thought that that information was a fact of the case. Next, the crime scene technician, Karen Blakely, she noted that the crotch of Stacy's underwear was wet. She didn't say moist, she didn't say damp, she said wet. And when she did the vaginal swabs, she came up with semen. And we know that there were three intact spermatozoa found on that swab. Now, dreamers, specifically my lady dreamers, ponder that for a moment. The crotch area of Stacy's underwear was wet. If she had just showered less than six hours before she died and did not have sexual intercourse with Fennell before retiring to bed, how quote-unquote wet do we think her underwear is going to be? I would go so far as to say, if that was truly what happened, I don't think the crotch of her underwear would have been wet at all. Well, some would argue that Stacy's underwear were wet because Rodney Reed raped her as she was on her way to work, and he killed her, he partially redressed her, and the underwear got wet from the seepage from the sexual assault. That's all fine and good, but how is it that only 12 hours later, Karen Blakely only swabbed three intact sperm. According to the Huffington Post article entitled Nine Things You Never Knew About Sperm, in every milliliter of semen, there is anywhere between 20 million and 100 million sperm. And each time the average male ejaculates, it's somewhere between 1.5 to 5 milliliters. So when you do the math, that's anywhere between 30 million and 500 million sperm per ejaculation, yet only three intact sperm were found. What does the science of that tell you, dreamers? That the sperm swabbed from Stacy's body was left there much earlier than Karen Blakely and Dr. Bayaro had testified to. Experts have been brought in to refute the science that was presented at Rodney's original trial. Renowned experts. And they say it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is scientifically impossible for Rodney to have been the one to have killed Stacy. And I will go through those scientific findings as we move along here in this case. So on May 18, 1998, the all-white jury convicted Rodney of the rape and murder of Stacy and subsequently sentenced him to death. And oh, by the way, did I mention that the only two African-Americans in the jury pool were struck by the prosecutor? What a surprise, right? Rodney's jury of his peers were 12 white people. 
that's legit, right? Right. Maybe in Texas. So in 2000, the Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed Rodney Reed's conviction and denied post-conviction relief based on the quote-unquote strength of the testimony presented at trial, namely the state's expert witness and Fennell's testimony. The Court of Criminal Appeals accepted Fennell's testimony that Stacy left their apartment to go to work at 3 a.m. on Tuesday, April 23, 1996, and further concluded, quote, given the strength of the DNA evidence connecting the appellant, that's Rodney, to the sexual assault on Stacy, and the forensic evidence indicating that the person who sexually assaulted Stacy was the person who killed her, a reasonable jury could find that the appellant is guilty of the offense of capital murder. And I don't mean to split hairs here or anything, but don't you think a quote-unquote reasonable jury would have had at least some black people on it? I'm just saying. So anyway, the Court of Criminal Appeals also relied on the strength of the state's experts when finding other trial errors to be harmless because, quote, the pathologist indicated that the donor of the semen was likely also the murderer because of the condition of Stacy's body that indicated that sexual assault had occurred at the time of the murder. So basically what they're saying is whatever mistakes went on at the trial didn't matter because the experts said what they said happened and that's that. And then most damning for Jimmy Finnell himself in this matter was this little tidbit that Rodney Reed had to present to the appellate court. He not only was able to present clear evidence that Jimmy Fennell was an extremely prejudiced person towards African-Americans, but he was also violent towards women. You see, dreamers, today Jimmy Fennell is no longer a police officer in Texas. He is no longer a police officer anywhere, nor will he ever be. So, what's he up to? Well, up until last year, Fennell was a prison inmate. What? Yep, you heard that right. For nearly 10 years, Fennell was in prison after he pled guilty to kidnapping and sexual battery against a woman he had taken into custody, and he just got out last year in 2018. And that type of conviction... That sort of violence towards women casts an entirely new light on his role in what happened to Stacy some 12 years prior to his conviction. I'll get into more details about that also as we go along here too. But back to Rodney's appeal. His defense team had also obtained statements from a former colleague of Fennell's who reported that Fennell told him that if he were to ever find out that Stacy was cheating on him, he would strangle her with a belt and that Fennell also had become aware of Stacy's relationship with Rodney Reed. The Criminal Court of Appeals acknowledged that this new evidence, quote, may indeed arouse a healthy suspicion that Fennell had some involvement in Stacy's death, but it denied post-conviction relief based on the evidence of sexual assault and the estimated time of Stacy's death being at 3 a.m. In February of 2015, Rodney Reed filed a successive state habeas petition after amassing a plethora of new evidence proving his innocence. First of all, the pathologist who conducted Stacy's autopsy, Dr. Bayardo, 
actually retracted his trial testimony concerning key aspects of the state's case. Most critically, the time of Stacy's death, the existence of a sexual assault, and the length of time sperm can remain intact. Secondly, three of the nation's most experienced and renowned forensic pathologists, Drs. Michael Baden, Werner Spitz, and Leroy Riddick, each one of them have determined that the state's theory of Rodney Reed's guilt was medically and scientifically impossible. And I also want to mention that renowned pathologist Dr. Sarah Weck has also spoken publicly on the Dr. Phil show regarding Rodney's case, and I will go over his opinion as well. These experts have all demonstrated that the forensic evidence that proves that Stacy Stites was murdered before midnight, not at 3 a.m. as the state presented at trial based on the word of Jimmy Fennell, that Stacy left the apartment at that time, which doesn't even make any sense anyway, like, did she step out onto her front porch and get killed right that second? Remember, according to the state's theory, Rodney had to have stopped Stacy on her route to work, commandeer her vehicle and her, sexually assault her, kill her, redress her, transport her to where her body was found, and then go dump the truck. That theory would have had to place Rodney in or close to Giddings, and there is no evidence to show that he was anywhere near there at 3 a.m. They had to assign the 3 a.m. as the time of death because they needed it to be as early as possible based on Fennell's testimony in order for the story to fit the progression of the rigor and the decomposition and the diminishing amount and numbers of intact sperm found. The time of death had to be pushed back as far as possible. And Fennell limited that possibility by pinpointing Stacy's time leaving their apartment as being 3 a.m. And since the experts are now saying that Stacy died before midnight, by Fennell's own admission, she was alone with him at that time and only him. This is where invoking the fifth may have helped him out, only if he had done so a little bit sooner. But he had already locked himself into that statement and into that time frame, and it would be impossible for him to budge from that without looking guilty. He had to stick to that story. And unfortunately for him, the science slowly dismantled it. The forensic evidence presented by these new experts examining the case have also been able to prove that Stacy was not sexually assaulted and Rodney Reed's DNA was deposited at least one day prior to her murder. A whole day, not the 12 hours or so that the experts testify to at trial. The numbers and the amount of intact sperm prove scientifically that they were deposited when Rodney Reed said they were, late Sunday night, early Monday morning. And a third witness, a new one that has no association or affiliation with Rodney Reed, came forward to confirm a relationship between him and Stacy Stites. And I will talk more about her later on as well. She was a co-worker of Stacy's at the HEB, to whom Stacy confided in that she was seeing Rodney and that she was unhappy with her relationship with Jimmy Fennell. So with the new scientific evidence, the evidence of no sexual assault, and the new witnesses to attest to Rodney's and Stacy's relationship, 
This should establish Rodney's actual innocence and his right to habeas relief for violations of his constitutional rights. So, on February 23, 2015, the Criminal Court of Appeals stayed Rodney's execution. But no real or immediate action was taken thereafter. I will go into greater detail about what the experts have had to say about the scientific evidence, as they say it is proof beyond any doubt that Rodney is actually innocent. So after Rodney's execution was stayed, the habeas petition remained pending without any action on the part of the criminal courts of appeals for about a year. And it was then when Rodney came to discover that Officer Curtis Davis, described as Jimmy Finnell's best friend at the time, had given an interview with CNN where he discussed a previously undisclosed conversation between himself and Finnell on the 23rd of April 1996, the day that Stacy was found dead. According to Officer Davis, Finnell gave inconsistent statements as to his whereabouts on the night of the murder. Finnell had apparently told Davis that he was out drinking on the night Stacy was murdered. This directly contradicts what Finnell would later claim and testify to, that he was at home at the apartment that he shared with Stacy all evening during the time that it is now believed that Stacy was murdered. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and talk about some of the more recent motions filed in Rodney's case, which involves more witnesses coming forward with new information. Okay, so according to the Innocence Project, just this past October 4th, Rodney's attorneys filed a motion requesting the withdrawal of Rodney's execution date, which I told you at the beginning of part one is scheduled for November 20th. So now it's less than a month away. And this is based on new evidence that has literally just come to light. Two witnesses who knew Jimmy Finnell at the time of the murder have come forward with information which both supports Rodney's actual innocence but also establishes a violation of Rodney's right to due process under a Brady violation. In order to thoroughly investigate this new evidence, the withdrawal of the execution date is mandatory under the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. The petition that was filed was based on two affidavits that provide testimony from an insurance salesperson who stated that Fennell threatened Stacy while they were in the process of applying for life insurance. The second witness is Jim Clampett, a deputy with the Lee County Sheriff's Office at the time of the murder, to whom Fennell made an incriminating and inculpatory statement at Stacy's funeral regarding her body. This new evidence could not have been discovered or presented in any of Rodney's prior pleadings and does support the case for his actual innocence. So let's talk about these two new witnesses that have come forward on Rodney's behalf. According to an October 2019 article in The Statesman, in July of 2019, a woman who knew Stacy Ann Fennell sent a letter to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Attorney General Ken Paxton, Bastrop County District Attorney Brian Goritz, and State Judge Doug Shaver, claiming to have witnessed a conversation between Fennell and Stacy in 1995 in which Fennell threatened to kill Stacy if he ever caught her messing around on him. The woman, whose attorneys have asked for her name to not be revealed, worked for a fraternal order as a life insurance salesperson. 
The fraternal order frequently held social events and functions for which they hired outside security officers. As a police officer with the Giddings Police Department at the time, Fennell was often hired to work security for these social events, and the woman said she would often have conversations with the officers if they had encountered problems or to just talk. She said, quote, On one occasion, Fennell introduced me to his girlfriend at the time, a young lady named Stacy Stites. After that introduction, I remember seeing her at the lodge hall accompanying Jim on a few other occasions that he worked. The woman remembered a conversation with Fennell and Stacy in November of 1995, at which time Stacy agreed to complete an application for life insurance. And while doing so, she said, quote, I really don't know why I need a life insurance policy since I'm so young. In response to that, the woman claimed hearing Fennell make the remark, quote, If I ever catch you messing around on me, I will kill you, and no one will ever know it was me that killed you. Of the conversation, the woman stated in her affidavit that she found the remarks harsh and abrasive, and she has not forgotten it. And along with her affidavit, she provided the receipt for the life insurance policies that they purchased from her. So the question, at least for me, arises, why come forward now? In Dreamers, you find that tends to be an ongoing theme here amongst witnesses that could potentially provide exculpatory evidence on Rodney Reed's behalf, and often cited are instances of witness intimidation, and that is something we will also touch on at various points in this case. I'm not saying that that's the case here, I'm actually not clear as to why she hadn't come forward any sooner. There is also the possibility with any number of witnesses that came forward in the years following Rodney's conviction that at the time of the trial, these witnesses did not realize the importance of the information or the knowledge that they had of the case. Also, because Fennell was a police officer, witnesses being intimidated by that and the influence that he may have had could have factored into their decisions as to whether or not to come forward. So this woman said that she attempted to come forward with this information sometime in the early 2000s to Rodney's defense attorney, Bryce Benjet, who is still working with Rodney on behalf of the Innocence Project. But she said that she was unable to get in touch with him. So in 2015, after there had been a flurry of stories in the media regarding Rodney's execution, she did write a letter to Attorney General Paxton and Governor Abbott, but did not receive any response. Then in July, she reached out again with another series of letters to them as well as District Attorney Goertz and Judge Shaver. The second witness to come forward this year was former Texas Game Warden and Lee County Sheriff's Deputy Lee Clampett. He knew Fennell at the time that he was with the Giddings Police Department and was a friend of Fennell's. He attended Stacy's funeral service and discussed seeing her in the casket inside the viewing room at the funeral home. She was wearing a white dress. The dress that Stacy was wearing was her wedding dress. And knowing what we know today, that is unsettling. In his own affidavit that was filed this month by Rodney's attorneys, Clampett wrote, quote, Jimmy was looking at Miss Stites. At that moment, Jimmy said something that I will never forget. 
He said something along the lines of, you got what you deserved. I was completely shocked and floored by what Jimmy had said. It did not strike me as something a grieving partner would say to their murdered fiance. And what about not coming forward sooner? He said that the memory came to the surface while reading about Rodney's impending execution in the media, and he wrote, quote, The more I thought about it, the more I knew I would not be able to live with myself if I did not come forward. And of course, there are those who strongly believe in Rodney's guilt, and these new statements are dubious at best, and that they are a last-ditch effort to appeal Rodney's conviction with all of these questionable claims. That too much time has passed for any of these claims to not be fraught with skepticism. So let's switch gears here and talk about DNA testing of the evidence found at the crime scene. DNA technology was obviously available to an extent back in 1996, as Rodney was identified as a match to the DNA found in and on Stacy. But, like I said, DNA testing could only go so far back then. Today, we have touch DNA testing available. Like, for example, the DNA that might have been left behind by the person who was handling the woven belt that was used to strangle Stacy, her name tag that was tucked in behind her knee, the t-shirt and the two beer cans that were discarded at the scene. Rodney's attorneys are certain that if these items would be tested using technology available today, that those items would reveal the DNA of Stacy's real killer, and that DNA would not be Rodney's. Of course, the prosecutors on the case insist Rodney is guilty, and they are vehemently opposed to subjecting any of these items to DNA testing and have fought against the testing of these items every step of the way through Rodney's appeals. I'm sorry, but how is that okay? And how is it that everyone that is wanting to side with the prosecution on this comfortable with being opposed to applying all of the advances in science and technology that has evolved in the decades since Stacy was murdered? If there is a potential for the DNA to be identified and tested in any case such as Rodney's, especially when someone is condemned, staring death in the face, don't they have the right to make sure that every single possible piece of evidence is tested to ensure their conviction is justified? If you ask me, it is a serious problem if those working on behalf of the state and the prosecution actively oppose DNA testing of any case this old. You have to ask yourselves, what are they afraid of? And you also have to ask, what is the ultimate goal of the state of Texas or any state that seeks to put to death a defendant for a crime like this? To make sure that the conviction stands no matter what? or to seek justice and find the truth no matter what. According to a September article in the appeal.org written by Lauren Gill back in August of 2019, Rodney's attorneys filed a federal civil rights motion violation arguing that putting 
Rodney to death without conducting the DNA testing on these items is a violation of Rodney's constitutional rights. And in September, his attorney asked the United States Supreme Court to consider Rodney's claims of innocence and pose the question to the court. Is convicting and executing a person who is innocent a violation of the Constitution? As I have said, DNA testing has advanced by leaps and bounds and crucial information can be uncovered that can potentially change the trajectory of Rodney's case by identifying the people who were present at the crime scene. The results of this DNA testing, if it were allowed to happen, could change everything in terms of who committed this crime. But it also can confirm Rodney's guilt as well, so it cuts both ways. When it comes to death penalty cases, lives have been saved because of advances in DNA technology. According to the appeal.org, of the 166 people exonerated from death row since 1973, 21 of them have been freed as a direct result of DNA testing that had been previously unavailable or not conducted at all. But prosecutors, such as the one who prosecuted Rodney, continue to stand in strong opposition to re-examining death penalty cases by way of DNA testing, despite the potential of saving someone who may very well have been wrongly convicted and sentenced to die. People are still going to be put to death despite the availability of the investigative tools that are now available through ever-advancing DNA technology. Dreamers, no person on death row should be denied access to science that was not available to them at the time of their conviction. How freaking high do the stakes have to be before the prosecution will take a step back from their opposition to this and not be afraid of finding the truth? The state of Texas has no right to deny Rodney this, or anybody in the United States for that matter. This is the exact reason why the rest of the civilized world looks at the United States continuing the implementation of the death penalty as archaic and barbaric. And dreamers, this is by no means meant to be an anti-death penalty presentation. I am certainly not here to argue that. This is meant to be an anti-putting-to-death-the-wrong-person presentation. We've said previously, there is nothing in the way of evidence or eyewitness testimony that supports the state's contention that Rodney Reed kidnapped Stacy as she drove to work, sexually assaulted her, killed her, left her body where it was later found and abandoned the truck where it was later found. And I said previously, the linchpin of the entire case were those three intact spermatozoa, which I again, I have to reiterate, numerous experts have concluded that the sexual encounter related to those three spermatozoa, based on irrefutable scientific proof, were deposited as a result of a sexual encounter after midnight an entire day before Stacy was murdered. Forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Baden wrote of this case in 2015, quote, It is further my opinion beyond any reasonable degree of medical certainty that based on all the forensic evidence, Mr. Reed is scheduled to be put to death for a crime he did not commit. 
Now, Dr. Baden, he has been doing this job for a really long time. And he was even the medical examiner who investigated President John F. Kennedy's death, as well as Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. He testified at a hearing held on Rodney's case in October of 2017. He took the stand and said that he reviewed all of the original crime scene photos, videos, autopsy, and lab reports, and he reached the conclusion beyond any doubt that Stacy Stites died before midnight on Monday, April 22, 1996. And this directly flies in the face of the prosecution's timeline that placed her time of death at 3 in the morning on the following Tuesday, April 23rd. Ultimately, what this boils down to is we have to believe one of two scenarios. Either Stacy died before midnight, and that would have had to have been by the hands of Jimmy Fennell, or she died at 3 a.m., and that would have had to have been by the hands of Rodney Reed. Both of those options really have no definitive proof of being either forensically. Yet, if the DNA testing would just be conducted on the evidence gathered at the crime scene, we might know more here. Is there circumstantial evidence? Sure there is. The circumstantial evidence points to both men when you line them up side by side. Fennell was the last person to see or hear from Stacy prior to her death. He said she was with him the entire night before. Evidence at the scene, the truck, the crumpled up t-shirt, the checkbook registered next to the belt on the ground beside the truck, all of that stuff belonged to Fennell. He certainly would have had easier access to both the truck and Stacy, and he had plenty of time. Hours, in fact. Where his alibi was, he was asleep. And for Rodney, the evidence against him is both forensic and circumstantial. The DNA found in Stacy definitively linked him to her. But the circumstances, be them as they may, Rodney just happened to have sexual intercourse with Stacy the day before she was murdered. These criminals are always the unluckiest guys in the world, right? We hear that over and over again. Even in our recent series on Kevin Cooper's possible wrongful conviction, how unlucky does a guy have to be to wind up escaping from a minimum security prison only to find yourself hiding out in a house 150 yards away from where a brutal quadruple murder just happened to occur the same night Cooper said he abandoned the house and headed towards Mexico. Rodney Reed had that same bad luck, having sex with a woman who would turn up dead 24 hours later. And by the way, all the evidence that was presented at Rodney's trial has since either been disproven by science or recanted altogether by the experts who testified that Rodney did this. The linchpin, so to speak, the semen, that testimony has been recanted. Not disproven, but recanted by those who made those claims at Rodney's trial. I will talk more about the doctors who have studied this case more in depth, but I do want to point out something about Dr. Baden. I was sent the links to a four-part YouTube documentary put together by those advocating for Rodney, and it included some of the footage of Dr. Baden's testimony at Rodney's hearing. I will talk more about this later, but when I watched it, there was one final portion of his time on the stand that, for me, completely sums up how Rodney's case has been treated all of these years. 
When Dr. Baden was finished with his findings and his time on the stand was winding down, the judge said something along the lines of asking if the doctor was finished. Can he go ahead and go? He probably has more important things to do. The judge actually said that at the hearing. The doctor replied, this is important. And to me, it is so incredibly demonstrative of how utterly dismissive everyone has been towards Rodney's case. I mean, for God's sakes, this is his life. How are you telling the doctor that's trying to save his life that he's probably got more important things to do? What the hell? Huh. Anyway, let's take a moment and discuss one of the most, <laughs> if you could believe this gets even worse, one of the most egregious oversights on the part of the crime scene investigator, Karen Blakely, and the medical examiner, Dr. Robert Bayardo. If you recall in the first go-round when I discussed the findings at both the crime scene and at the autopsy in terms of the condition of Stacy's body, and I'm not even sure if either one of them ever noted the red blotchiness that was present in Stacy's face, upper chest, arms, and hands. I'm pretty sure both of them completely overlooked it or it was written off as a result of Stacy's exposure to the sun. This is not true. And based on what we've seen going on in this case thus far, it really wouldn't surprise me if these experts would choose to overlook this vital piece of evidence on purpose. That redness that was present in Stacy's face, chest, arms, and hands, that was lividity. Stacy Stites had fixed frontal lividity in those areas of her body. We have talked about lividity in the past, but just to review, postmortem lividity is the settling of blood by way of gravity inside the body in the early postmortem interval, according to ScienceDirect.com. Lividity generally becomes apparent within a short period after death and is said to become fixed between 8 and 12 hours after death, though some articles say as early as 4 to 6 hours. Fixed lividity can be tested by checking for skin blanching when pressed on the area that has turned dark red due to lividity. If that spot when pressed doesn't lighten up, then lividity is fixed. It can also be determined to be fixed when there is a lack of shifting of lividity after the body is rolled over. Now, the article also said that the determination of post-mortem fixation of lividity is generally unreliable because some tests have revealed even as much as 24 hours after death that lividity had not become fixed using the pressure test. But when it comes to Stacy, the lividity present in her case had become fixed. Now, if Stacy had been discovered face down in the brush on Blue Bonnet Drive, lividity would have essentially been a non-issue. But she wasn't found face down. She was found face up. And for whatever amount of time she had been laying there off the side of the road on her back, lividity did not shift. It remained present in her face, chest, arms, and hands, consistent with Stacy having been left face down for several hours when she died. 
The implications of this finding are astounding and the fact that it was overlooked by the experts at trial is inexcusable. I mean, come on, give me a break. Even us sitting here listening to our true crime podcast with absolutely no experience in forensic pathology to speak of, even we could see what the frontal lividity present in Stacy's body meant. Unfortunately, there was nobody to challenge the findings at the time of Rodney's trial. His defense did not call an expert of their own to refute the findings of the state's experts. Nobody knew or recognized what the blotchiness present in the front side of Stacy's body meant and how this case could have and should have hinged on that along with the refuting of the sperm evidence Unless the jury really was dead set on suspending all common sense, it is likely that they may not have convicted Rodney. What does the evidence of lividity actually mean for the case against him? Well, if Stacy was face down for several hours before she was moved and placed at the site where she was found, well, I have to ask, where is it exactly she would have been laying face down at? I ask you, what makes the most sense? What are the possible scenarios here? Let's start from the time the truck was discovered at the high school at 5.23 a.m. and work backwards from there. At 5.23, Stacy was already laying dead on her back at the site where her body was found. Her body already had fixed frontal lividity at that time. So that means she was dead face down at another location for several hours, anywhere between 4 and 12 hours. Working backwards from the time the truck was found, because that is really the only verified time that we have for anything that morning, we can conclude that Stacy's body was left on Blue Bonnet Drive no later than 5 in the morning. So where does the lividity place Stacy's body from there? Well, when we do the math, the earliest possible time of death would have been 5 p.m. the previous afternoon. But we do know that Stacy was very much alive at the very latest between 8 and 8.30, possibly a little later than that, the previous evening when her mom last saw her. And the latest time she could have been killed based on lividity would have had to have been 1 in the morning, four hours before the truck was found. That's the absolute latest time her body could have been left where it was discovered. So ask yourselves, if Stacy was laying face down for hours, sometime between 8.30 p.m. to the very earliest to 1 a.m. the next day at the very latest, with whom does that place her in the company of for that period of time? It's one person, and it's not Rodney Reed. It's Jimmy Fennell. And that is based on his own sworn testimony that he has repeatedly insisted all these years. That was a fact. He was alone with Stacy at the time he got home from his Little League game to the time he claimed Stacy left for work at 3 in the morning. He would not have known what the lividity would have meant and how badly that would end up impeaching his story and his alibi. And unfortunately, at the time of Rodney's trial, nobody acknowledged the lividity or the importance of it. Was this because of inexperience or was this by design? 
Well, could Karen Blakely not have known? Did she really attribute the red blotches as post-mortem sunburns? Could Dr. Bayardo have chosen to overlook the lividity because he was told the last time Stacy was seen alive was at 3 in the morning, so he felt compelled to make his findings fit the narrative fed to him. Whatever happened, the lividity was overlooked and not mentioned at trial, and if it had been, it would have obliterated the state's timeline. And this isn't just fluff, this is science. Not a scientist here, but it really doesn't take one to see that they got this one wrong. So let's address the mucus now. In the same vein regarding the condition of Stacy's body, let's discuss the mucus. As I mentioned in part one, a dark, foamy, mucus-like substance was found running out of Stacy's mouth and nose, down her face, and into her hair. And it was also found on the carpeted transmission hump that separates the driver's side and the passenger side floorboards. According to Dr. Baden's testimony of October 2017, the fluid that is visible in the photographs inside the truck is produced at least four hours after death. According to Dr. Baden, this is known as purge fluid, and it is fluid associated with decomposition and it may exude from the oral and nasal passages. Internal pressure begins to build up, forcing the decomposition fluids to be expelled from the lungs through the mouth and nose and is often misinterpreted as bleeding. So this means Stacy was dead for some time, already getting into the early stages of decomposition when she was placed face down on the floorboard of Fennell's truck. And again, this contradicts everything that was presented at Rodney's trial. And by the way, Dr. Baden also contradicted the sperm evidence presented at Rodney's trial too, stating that the semen discovered was a result of faulty autopsy procedures at the crime scene and countered the argument that Stacy had sex just prior to her death by making it clear that sperm can live inside a dead body for several days. But we've already gone over the fact that the numbers of sperm found in Stacy's body is inconsistent with that it having been deposited recently or at the time that she was killed. The evidence strongly supports what Rodney had said once his DNA was found to be a match to the DNA found in Stacy's body that he had consensual sex with her a full day before she died. Dr. Baden has said, unequivocally, beyond a reasonable degree of medical certainty, based on all the forensic evidence, Mr. Reed is scheduled to be executed for a crime that he did not commit. And by the way, I think I forgot to mention that aside from the fact that the first officer at the scene where Stacy's body was found placed a random blanket over her body, but also Stacy's clothing was removed from her body at the crime scene too, which all the experts have said is not the proper environment for her clothing to be taken off. Now the Bastrop District Attorney, Brian Goritz, did relent on some DNA testing in 2015. He consented to Stacy's clothing and the swabs from her body to undergo further DNA testing. But the tests only revealed that Rodney Reed was a potential match for the biological materials found on the clothing. But dreamers, we already know this. We know that Rodney's DNA would be found on Stacy's clothing. 
Remember, I just went through the whole entire thing about her having met up with Rodney late on Sunday, April 21st or into early Monday, the 22nd. He said she picked him up and they had sex. I then reviewed Stacy's timeline leading up to the last time her mother saw her alive at around 8.30 in the evening of the 22nd. We have pretty much established that from the time Rodney says that he last saw Stacy, up until the time Stacy's mother last saw her, there was not an occasion where Stacy took a shower or changed her clothing. Rodney's attorneys would argue that Stacy had been redressed in her work clothes from the previous night. But I argue that she never changed out of them. And in regards to the fact that the district attorney consented to that specific DNA testing, well, Rodney's attorney, Bryce Benjet, said, quote, In a lot of ways, this was a way for them to claim that they agreed to some DNA testing without actually risking a DNA result that could actually identify who committed the crime. And that makes sense. Why consent to the DNA testing of Stacy's clothing, but not the murder weapon, not the name tag, not the beer cans? Stuff like that that was handled could have been handled by the actual killer. The district attorney wasn't about to take that chance. Rodney's attorneys have maintained that it is highly likely that the belt and the other items found at the scene could contain the DNA of the person who killed Stacy. In the federal civil rights complaint, Rodney's attorneys said that not only has Fennell made numerous statements throughout the investigation that were inconsistent with the story that he and Stacy showered together and went to bed the evening before she was found dead, but they also contend that Fennell has been reported to have said on numerous occasions that if he ever caught Stacy cheating, he would kill her and at least once said it would be with a belt. But they just won't do it. Fennell's attorney, of course, maintains that his client is innocent, that he loves Stacy and wanted to marry her and the right person is on death row. District Attorney Gowartz has continually described Rodney's challenges to the case against him as a fervent attack with zero basis. Gowartz has also gone on record to say that the items cannot be tested because they are contaminated and have not been properly stored. How convenient. He has also accused Rodney of only wanting this testing done because all his other options have run dry. And the highest court in Texas, all those judges have consistently ruled against Rodney Reed. Nobody wants to listen to science and logic, I guess. And by the way, District Attorney Gowertz saying that the items cannot be tested because they have not been properly stored and all are contaminated is no excuse for keeping Rodney on death row. If anything, y'all should be worried about all the violations of Rodney's rights that are going on here because of the state's failure to make sure none of the evidence at the crime scene contained DNA from another person, a.k.a. potentially exculpatory evidence. It is not right, and nobody should be comfortable with this. Sometimes, I wish these people could just put aside their pride for the sake of the bigger issue here at hand. Rodney's life. If these people to this day are still unwilling to accept that Rodney matters just as much as everyone else, including Jimmy Fennell, they have no business being in this line of work. 
Why is the truth at the bottom of the priority list here? We're human. We make mistakes. So what if it's proven that they got this one wrong? What the hell are you afraid of? To lose an election? To be passed up for a career opportunity? To have your public image tarnished? Again, I point to Rodney's life. Your election win, your career, your win-loss ratio, is that really worth more than a potentially innocent man's life? Really? Because that is what the officials involved in denying Rodney his motions are essentially saying. Applying 2019 technology and standards to a 1996 case is meaningless. That's what they're saying. Many cases fail to stand the test of time and technological advancements. Many cases have changed when we look at them through our contemporary lenses. There is nothing wrong with that. Most Americans will appreciate it, actually. That's why this is so frustrating. And the Supreme Court isn't much help in this case because it has ruled that Americans do not have the constitutional right to DNA testing. Though that standard does vary from state to state, essentially, death row inmates have to hope that their state courts will rule in favor of their motion for post-conviction DNA testing, or the prosecutor must give their consent. Which, to me, seems really unfair and gives way too much control over the evidence to the prosecution. Texas judges have already made their ruling that Rodney will not be able to test the belt as well as the other items from the crime scene. So this leaves it all up to Governor Greg Abbott. And it's not likely he is going to issue a stay or commute Rodney's death sentence anytime soon. So, going back to Rodney's petition in 2015 when his execution was stayed, he and his attorneys discovered that Officer Curtis Davis, a Bastrop Sheriff's officer and friend of Fennell's, had actually given an interview to CNN where he described a previously undisclosed conversation between himself and Fennell on April 23, 1996, the day that Stacy was found murdered. I touched on this a few minutes ago. The conversation was an account Fennell gave to Davis regarding his whereabouts the night that Stacy was murdered. It was given after she was reported missing, but before her body was found. What Fennell had told him that day differed substantially from both the investigator's notes of Fennell's story obtained by the defense and Fennell's trial testimony. Rodney and his defense team later discovered that at the request of the Bastrop District Attorney's Office, that Curtis Davis was disciplined for telling the CNN journalist what he knew. Davis received a month's unpaid suspension based on formal findings that his speaking with CNN could bring influence to a cause for a retrial and because Davis did not prepare a supplemental report about what Fennell told him or notified his supervisor regarding their need for such a report. On June 6, 2016, Rodney filed an additional habeas petition asserting Brady violations and false testimony based on this new information. 
A year later, on May 17, 2017, the Criminal Courts of Appeals issued a cursory order dismissing Rodney's petition as an abuse of the writ, stating in a conclusory fashion and without analysis that Rodney failed to make a prima facie showing on any of his claims. Again, another instance of the valid issues that Rodney and his attorneys have raised being dismissed with very little to no consideration as to the impact they could potentially have on the legitimacy of his conviction. But they did find that Rodney had made the requisite showing on the Brady violation and false testimony claims related to Fennell's trial testimony. The Criminal Court of Appeals remanded those claims to the District Court for evidentiary hearing. Finally, right? Something going Rodney's way. Okay, so in October of 2017, a four-day evidentiary hearing was held. At the hearing, Officer Curtis Davis identified his transcript of his CNN interview and adopted it as his testimony. His account of his conversation with Fennell only hours after Stacy was reported missing dramatically differed from Fennell's statements to police and his later trial testimony. At trial, Fennell testified that after attending the baseball practice, he stayed home that evening with Stacy, that they showered together before she fell asleep, and that he stayed up a while longer watching TV before retiring to bed himself. But Fennell told Curtis Davis that he went out drinking with other officers that night. Fennell claimed that he stayed out late as to not disturb Stacy, who had an early work shift. Fennell testified that after first insisting to Stacy's mom that he would drive her to work in the morning, the two changed their plans and agreed that Fennell would sleep in the next morning and Stacy would drive herself to work. Fennell told Curtis Davis that he had planned to drive Stacy but overslept because he was out drinking. These two irreconcilable stories from Fennell about where he was and what he was doing on the night of April 22, 1996, flies in the face of the state's arguments to the jury that highlighted the consistency of Fennell's testimony when the state told the jury, quote, it is important to note that nobody could ever find anything inconsistent with what Fennell told you. Nobody. When Rodney Reed called Jimmy Fennell to the stand as a witness at the 2017 hearing, and remember, Fennell was in prison still at this time for his own kidnapping and sexual assault conviction, to which he pled guilty, right? Guilty. So you know, Rodney Reed may not exactly have been a Boy Scout, but neither was Jimmy Fennell, so there's that. Anyway, when Fennell was called as a witness at Rodney's 2017 hearing, he declined to take the stand, but rather provided a declaration stating in part, quote, If I am called to testify and asked any questions regarding the subject matter of A, the murder of Stacey Stites, B, any statements I may have made regarding my activities and whereabouts on April 22nd and 23rd, 1996. C. The investigation of the murder of Stacey Stites or D. The prosecution and trial of Rodney Reed for the murder of Stacey Stites. I will not answer any questions. Instead, 
I will respond to each question regarding the subjects by stating that, on the advice of counsel, I am declining to answer the questions based on my Fifth Amendment right to not testify. Again with the Fifth, right? Yeah. The district court, the good old district court, granted the state's request that no adverse inference be drawn from Fennell's refusal to testify, despite Rodney's attorney's objections. In other words, nobody can feel anything negative about the fact that Fennell refused to testify. On December 22, 2017, the district court signed, without any modifications, the finding of facts and conclusions of law proposed by the state. Incredibly, the findings which the Criminal Court of Appeals reviewed but did not adopt analyzed with great care Curtis Davis's testimony regarding what Fennell did and did not say to Davis about the events of the evening of Stacy's murder, but failed to even mention that Fennell appeared but refused to testify. The findings also acknowledge that Dr. Baden opined that Stacy was dead before midnight on April 22, 1996, when Fennell claimed that the two were home together, that there is no evidence from the autopsy photos of Stacy that she was sexually assaulted, and that Stacy was dead in Fennell's truck for at least four to five hours before being left at the location where she was found. Now, the findings do avoid discrediting Dr. Baden's testimony, concluding instead that his opinions were, get this, not material. This makes no sense if you really think about it because Dr. Baden provided scientific proof which the state did not rebut that demonstrated both Fennell's motive to lie given that Stacy was killed when he testified they were home together and that his testimony that Stacy left on her own volition on the morning of the 23rd had to have been false. Not material, they said. Okay. Rodney even admitted affidavits from doctors Spitz and Riddick that backed up Dr. Baden's testimony. Three experts here, all pretty much saying the same thing. And don't forget, Dr. Bayardo's declaration recanting his trial testimony. Yes, Dreamers, the medical examiner who conducted Stacy's autopsy in 1996, put it in writing that he was recanting his testimony. The district court's findings came to the conclusion that Dr. Baden's testimony was immaterial regardless of this. What was their reason? They said because it conflicted with Dr. Bayardo's trial testimony, the testimony that he recanted, meaning he said, oh, whoops, my bad, that was wrong, take backs, I mean, come on. The court's findings cited Dr. Bayardo's recanted testimony. Am I like in clown court or something? How is this even seriously happening in real life court of law? This feels more like a really horrible, never-ending practical joke here. Like the judge is suddenly going to jump out of his robe and say, gotcha, just kidding. I mean, seriously, these proceedings are a joke. And this is the judge that asked Rodney's attorney 
if Dr. Baden could be done because he was sure that he had something more important to do. Because Rodney Reed's life is in the balance here is an insignificant time suck, right? Man, I can't even deal with these chords. They're so frustrating. Okay, so because Dr. Bayardo recanted his opinion as to the time of Stacy's death, Fennell was the state's only witness that could support its theory that Stacy was killed on her way to work. But again, Fennell has ducked and dodged everything by taking the fifth. So by now, the state really has nothing, nothing that places Rodney Reed in Stacy's presence at the time she died. Nothing. What do they have? Three little sperm that happened to outlive all the others. That's it. So while Rodney's 2016 petition was pending before the Criminal Court of Appeals, the agencies that employed Blakely and Clement issued letters discrediting their opinions. Opinions that had left Rodney's jury with the false impression that the deposit of Rodney's sperm occurred within 24 hours of being tested and therefore was contemporaneous with Stacy's murder. On June 26, 2018, Rodney filed a subsequent petition asserting that this new evidence, in conjunction with all the other evidence, raised a prima facie case of innocence and also constituted changed scientific opinions. Thus, as of the date of the filing, Rodney has effectively disproven every aspect of the case against him. And I am going to go over each aspect of the state's case that Rodney was able to disprove point by point. However, I am going to end this part two here so I can get this recorded and get it out to you as soon as possible. And I will be getting to work on the next part where I will demonstrate how Rodney and his attorneys have been able to dismantle the state's case against him piece by piece. So after you have listened to this, come on over to our Facebook page and share your thoughts about what we've gone over so far, or if you have any theories of your own. You can also find all the videos and documents related to Rodney's case on the Facebook page that I joined dedicated to seeking the truth. It's called Rodney Reed, Innocent on Texas Death Row. And you can do your part. If you think that there is reasonable doubt as to Rodney's guilt, or if you believe that he is actually innocent and scheduled to die unjustly in little under a month's time from now, then please visit change.org and sign the petition to stop the execution of Rodney Reed. If you want to go even further, you can call Texas Governor Abbott directly and make sure that you speak with a live person and ask him for a 30-day reprieve. The number is area code 512-463-2000. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Let's make sure Texas gets this right. Until next time, sweet dreams.